2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I'll begin reading in verse 1. It's the story of a man by the name of Manasseh, who is known as the prodigal son of the Old Testament. And I don't want to read the entire story. We all enjoy hearing a good story, especially one that turns out, that turns out good, uh, that turns out in a way that we would smile going away. Uh, this story has that to it. And so if you would begin reading with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the hosts of heavens and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, which, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I've commanded them, all the law, the statutes, the rulers given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an altar wall for the city of David west of Gion in the valley and the entrance to the fish gate. And he carried it to Ophel and he raised it very high. He also put commanders of all the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that had been built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayers to his God 
And the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the king, kings of Israel. And his prayer, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin, his faithlessness, and the sites on which he built the high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they are buried with him in his house. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I want to give you uh, thanks that you are such a good, merciful God. We have just read very clearly on two occasions this morning of how faithful your mercy is. To care for us even when we are in deep sin, in darkness, separated from you, even in love with our iniquity. God, thank you that your mercy is more. Bless, Lord, by your power, by your spirit, your son's name, as we look in your holy book. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's message is The Power of Mercy, and a series that we're calling Loved by God. Power of Mercy. I could have entitled this sermon with the title of the hymn that we sang earlier on, His Mercy is More. If anyone could sing the hymn, His Mercy is More, and mean it, it's Manasseh. Manasseh was a character in history whose sin against the Lord was epic. He was a man that experienced the mercy of the Lord in greater capacity. He was saved having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb that had not yet been offered. We could say for sure, Manasseh was loved by God. I think one of the key passages in this narrative is in verse 13. Manasseh, look at verse 13, Manasseh prayed to God, prayed to him, and God was moved. There's his mercy. There's the love of God shown in mercy, moved by the entreaty, the supplication, the plea that came from Manasseh. Then Manasseh, after this, knew the Lord was God. He did not know the Lord was God until he had received forgiveness after he'd humbled himself and prayed. This is an incredible story. Would you agree? And we all We have a story of grace, don't we? We all have a story of God's mercy. If you're saved, you have a story. In church world, we, in the church world, we call it a testimony. You have a testimony. You could tell people what your life was like BC. Uh, Not that you're that old. You would just lived at a time when you were not converted, before conversion. What was your life like before conversion? Can you sum it up in a sentence? A word, two words, a mess. If you have a testimony, you can sum up your story in a very short amount of time. When we talk to people about what it means to share the gospel, we talk about how important your testimony is, how incredibly important your testimony is, because it helps you to get into a a gospel presentation and conversation. You get to talk to people about, this is what my life was like before Christ, and this is how I met Christ, and this is what my life is like after Christ. We just believe it's important to have that down and practice it so that if you're in an elevator and you have a chance between floor one and eight to share the gospel, you can share your story this way. This is my life before I met Christ. This is how I met Christ, and this is what my life is like now. That can lead into a conversation about what it means to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and everyone's story matters. We often say, too, don't glorify the past. Don't go into deep detail about your past. However, that being said, 
The Holy Spirit chose to show us the deep, dark secrets of Manasseh's past and the deep, dark public sins that he was involved in as well. We see Manasseh's story unfold this way, his life before conversion, how he was converted, and his life after conversion. So let's check it out. To begin with, look at Manasseh before he was converted. First, we would say he was a brazen sinner, brazen sinner, meaning hardened. Why would we say he's hardened? Well, he grew up in a good godly home. He had a wonderful father by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a hero of sorts because he kicked out all of the false teachers and false religions from the land. He erased all of the images that went to false gods. He got rid of the the altars, the statues, and he they called everybody to worship the Lord God. As a result, God blessed Hezekiah. In fact, the Assyrians who were coming against Hezekiah uh, brought a lot of people with them in their army. And the king of Assyria said to the people of Judah, hey, don't believe your king and don't believe his prophet who happened to be Isaiah when they tell you that Yahweh is able to deliver you because he will not deliver you. But because of God's grace, because of a godly king who sought after the Lord at Isaiah the prophet's council, 180,000 of the Assyrian armies were struck dead by God in one night, to which the Judeans got up and saw the corpses of the dead bodies who had come to attack them and to destroy them. Well, Manasseh had watched that. He'd seen the hand of God protect his land and saw his dad, I'm sure, on his knees praying, saw the faith of his father and rejected all of that. It's been said and said, well, that some of the best men and women come from the worst circumstances. And some of the worst men and women come from the best circumstances. We read the story of the prodigal son who lived in a home where his father loved him, and he ran away, taking his dad's inheritance and squandering it. We all know people like that. In fact, that might be your story. In fact, today, I'm talking to some Manassas in here. Your sin may not be as public as Manassas. You might try to keep it a secret and private, but you too have grown up with godly influences around you. You have them around you now, and yet you're running from God. Manasseh was brazen in his sin, and he was blasphemous in his sin. We read over in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 21 is a parallel to this text. We learn more about Manasseh's sin, where we read how that he shed innocent blood, meaning that he persecuted the people of God. Manasseh not only came to hate God, but he came to hate God's word and God's people. And anybody that stood for God and spoke God's word became a target in Manasseh's world. A man who was supposed to defend the honor of God and protect the people of God turned on them. We can't help but think about the tradition that teaches that Isaiah the prophet, the great man of God, if you're new to the Bible, it's one of the largest books in your Old Testament, that book that Isaiah was given by the Lord, that Isaiah, the great prophet of God, was sawn in two, most likely by Manasseh. Tradition has it that Isaiah was placed between two planks of wood like a sandwich, and then sawn in two from head all the way down. Hebrews chapter 11 says that some of the great men of faith were sawn in two. Isaiah was one who was. Manasseh was a bold, brazen, blasphemous sinner. We call him bold because that's what 
Charles H. Spurgeon called him. Spurgeon, the great preacher of old, said Manasseh was a desperado in sin. He went to the limit of it, being very bold and desperately set on mischief. He was so bold and courageous that his sin went outside of his home and into the streets. He didn't care who knew about his sin. He was bold and public in it. As a result, he led his family away from God. He led his family into deep sin. Adam sinned and the whole world became his family, plunged into sin and to death. David, the great king after God's own heart, sinned and his family was torn apart because of his sin. Manasseh sinned and he drug his family with him. Anybody who's bought the lie, and man, it is a lie, that your sin is personal and it's no one's business, needs to be told the truth. There is no such thing as personal sin because every one of us are accountable to a holy God and our lives matter as influences over others. You cannot sin and it not drag other people into it. There are men here who need to get right with God. You know why? Because you cannot sin and it not affect your family. You can't sin and it not affect your family wife. Kids in here, you can't sin and not affect others around you. Don't buy Satan's lie that your sin is between you and nobody else. His sin also led a nation astray. Not only his family away, but an entire nation fell into sin and began to live worldly and godless and hated the things of God, hated the word of God and loved their sin. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous increase in a nation, is the context, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. I think there's a lot of groaning going on right now in the world. Not only in other nations in our world, but right here in the United States of America. What's happened to us? We have a constitution, and by God's grace, was, it was upheld in a very unique way by the Supreme Court this past week. And our constitution has survived further than anyone else's in the world, any other articles of government than any in the world. The same amount of time, in the same amount of time we've had our constitution in the United States of America, France has changed theirs 71 times. Italy, 51 times. Someone asked, why is it that our constitution stands against time. Well, a study was done by a university, and they found 15,000 different writings by the founders of our nation since the American Revolution. They isolated 3,154 quotes from our founding father. Out of those 3,154 quotes, 60% were from Scripture. 34% were direct quotes from Scripture. No wonder, no wonder our Constitution has stood the test of time. However, we, like Judah, are under the judgment of God. Judah was under the judgment of God. They would not repent. They would not turn. And they plunged deeper into sin. About 20 years ago or so, and I, I want to quote it 20 years ago because it's so up to date. 20 years ago or so, Charles Winnick, the reason I say it is so I can't remember exactly how long ago, 
he, he was a professor at New York University, and he did a study of nations that had risen to power and fell. And he found that of all the nations in the world that had risen to power and fell, that, that ones that had risen and fell, fell from sin within, particularly the sin of blurring the lines between masculinity and femininity, getting confused over gender. His study also revealed that any nation that blurred those lines only lasted 50 years at most. I've been asked a number of times, do you think we'll be under the judgment of God for what's going on in our nation? The answer is, what's going on in our nation is the judgment of God. This is a group of people that followed after Manasseh, loved their sin, and followed into great public epic iniquity. Manasseh was involved in the occult. He set up altars to worship the stars. He sought spiritists and necromancers, meaning that he tried to talk to the dead, and anytime anyone does that, they don't know. They're not talking to the dead, but someone that is very much alive There's a demonic voice behind that statement or that voice or that history. He's talking to demons, thinking that he's talking to the dead. He's not getting wisdom from above. He's getting wisdom from below, which the Bible says is demonic. Uh, He was superstitious. Uh, I don't know if this means anything, but he was the 13th king of Judah. He worshiped the god Moloch. We see this in the sense that he caused his sons to pass through the fire, according to 1 Kings 21. In this passage we just read, he offered his sons in sacrifice to this God. Moloch is a false God, but behind every false God and every false system is a real demon or a demon host. In other words, whether he knew it or not, Manasseh was offering his children to demons. And the Moloch that was then is the Moloch that's alive and well in the United States of America. He's not called Moloch now. He's called pro-choice. He's called the abortion industry. And he's calling for women and men to sacrifice their children at his shrine of personal freedom. He worshiped Baal. In fact, how he worshiped the Baals, and Baals are demonic beings, is that he set up Asherah poles. Asherah poles are the female counterpart to Baal, which means that at that place, whatever they were and however they looked, people engaged in public sexual immorality. They would parade their immorality. They disregarded Scripture. Deuteronomy 16, a quote from another passage that directly says, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord. In other words, you better not do anything that's going to create an opportunity for sexual perversion, especially in my house. It's one thing when the world parades their pride. It's another thing when the church opens their doors to it. This man was full of sin, full of lust. The Bible describes those who choose sin as being darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in their hardened hearts. Having lost all sensitivity to the Spirit, they engage in sensuality and indulge every impurity. There's an insatiable lust for more. The dulling of the conscience, 
leads to a blindness to the truth. The consequence of being blind to the truth is that God, according to Romans 1, then turns those who suppress the truth and are blind to the truth and choose to be blind to the truth to their sinful desires of their heart, to shameful lust, and to a depraved mind. This is Manasseh. He is far from God. He's led his people astray, his family away. But do you know some of the most radical Christians and evangelists have come out of the worst situations? Leslie and I today, after this service, will jet over to a celebration of sorts. It's kind of a happy, sad day because we're going to celebrate with the pastor that I grew up with, Harold Hudson, after he retires. He preaches his last sermon this morning. I wish I could be there. We only found out two weeks ago when he announced it that he'd be doing that. But he's been preaching for 50 years. I grew up underneath this preaching. I hear the stories of how, as a 30-something-year-old man, he worked in a mill in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and that he was far from God, didn't know Jesus. Someone shared Christ with him, and in a car on the, on the curb in front of his house, he bowed his head and gave his life to Jesus Christ. It wasn't long after that he was called to ministry, and by the age of 34, he was pastoring the Normandy Village Baptist Church, which would soon become Westside Baptist Church and been preaching for 50 years. It's amazing how that God does call people out of some of the worst circumstances to be faithful with their lives for the rest of their life. Anyone here who thinks they're irredeemable is wrong. Because God takes the worst of sinners and makes them the best of saints. He's so awesome. This weekend, I, I I got an email from a couple that I hadn't heard from in 23 years. And they were telling me their story and just telling me how they're now walking with God because when we met, they were separated and then a divorce followed. After, After getting saved, though, God put their family back together. And they were writing to tell me what God was doing in their life. Here's what the wife said. My husband has become such a God-loving man and the most amazing spiritual leader. It's been such a blessing to be his wife. You probably could never have guessed what he would become after how you met us 23 years ago. But I can believe it because that's what my God does. He puts messes back together, right, Mike? He puts people back together that are broken apart. He puts families back together that are blown apart. That there just seems to be no way that we could put that back together, and we can't, but God can. His mercy is more. Manasseh, he's an epic sinner, but he's converted. Let's see his life before conversion. Look how he's converted. Look with me in verse 10 through 13, as he is there and in his sin arrested by the Babylonians. Literally, in one verse, we read the cruelty of sin or the end of sin. The Lord brought upon them, that is, the Judeans in Israel, the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with what, y'all? Literal hooks. And bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. He was incarcerated in that place. They literally put fish hooks in him and drug him away, bound in chains, and incarcerated him so that he could not escape. 
What a metaphor for what sin really does. Sin never sets you free. It always incarcerates. It always chains. It always hurts. James says that sin has hooks in it. Our flesh is drawn away by it. I'm sure Manasseh might have thought that he was in control. He wanted to control everything in his life. He didn't want anyone else telling him what to do. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us are like that. We don't want anyone telling us exactly how we're to live our lives. We want freedom. We talk about freedom of the will. We want it. We beg for it. Except we all go our own way. He did not not seize control of his life, did he? He spun out of control. He must have thought, I don't need God. My dad needed God, but I'm, I'm bolder, I'm stronger, and I'm more of a man than my dad. What a man. What a man. He didn't need God. He was full of pride. In Proverbs 29.1, the Bible says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will be broken and beyond healing. What happened to him? I don't need God. I got this. What did he do in that state? Verse 12, he was in distress. He entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed. Prayer is how you talk to God. He didn't know God. He didn't want to have anything to do with God. And now he's talking to God. You say, I don't believe in God. Do you believe in sin? Do you believe that sin always leaves you empty, regretful, full of guilt and shame? Read the story of anyone who sins like Manasseh, who sins this epically, this valiantly, this boldly. And look at where their life ends up. It's always the same. No one's unique. There are stories in the paper just this week that you can read that I read about celebrities and other notorious people, people of notoriety, I should say, that have lived a life full of sin and have ended up like Manasseh. That's what sin does for all of us, though, for all of us. There's another really famous passage. Matt talked about one or read one this morning from the book of Luke, but there's another famous passage, I think, maybe being quoted in a lot of churches today. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. Do y'all know that verse? It's a promise God makes to his people, his chosen. And America is not God's chosen people, but the principles remain the same for us and for us as individuals. Here's what God says. Are y'all ready? Listen to this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Oh, Manasseh must have remembered that because when he couldn't do anything else, he did what he knew the Word of God said to do. He humbled himself and he prayed before God. He realized sin cannot be tamed. I can't control my life. I'm not in control of my life or my destiny. And sin has not been mine, but I have been his. Sin cannot be mastered, but it will master you. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And I'm talking to some people that are like Manasseh today, and you're sitting there thinking, I'm going to get rid of this sin in my life. 
You may not be public in your sin. You may be keeping it very secret. At least you think you are. But it is mastering you slowly but surely. It grows like kudzu. It will not stop until it's choked you out. But I got this. No, you don't. Humble yourself before God and pray. Look for his loving mercy. His mercy is more. I'll make a change. No, you want until you turn to God. All sin continues to fester. And it leaves you hungry like pancakes. When you eat pancakes, you want more, but you don't want the ones you already had. That's sin. Sin leads to regret, shame, and guilt, and it destroys your soul. And you say, well... Well, I'll live it up in this life the best I can, but then the next life, what will you do? Because the regret, shame, and guilt will destroy your soul in hell forever. Here he is alone in his sin. He didn't listen to Solomon. Solomon said, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad. Manasseh hadn't listened to wisdom. His father would not have been glad. But a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. He liked the prodigal son in the New Testament had done just that. And now he's alone in his sin. And now what does he do? He prays to God. He prays for mercy. This is no mere jailhouse religion of just wanting to get out of a circumstance. He goes to God and he has his sins forgiven and now he's restored. And this leads thirdly to this last part of his story, this last scene in the story of Manasseh, his life after conversion. He's set free. He's He's realizing his mercy is more. Can you imagine him coming back to Jerusalem? Everyone announcing the king's coming back. He is so crafty and cunning. What must he have done to escape the hands of the Assyrians? How did he get out of Babylon? Oh, there's nobody like Manasseh. That's a bad dude, Manasseh. Let's throw a party for Manasseh. Get the sacrifices ready. Let's go. Let's worship Baal, the great God of the universe. Let's get our drink ready, our feasting ready. Let's go and have a party. Let's have a party because our king is coming home. Except that's not what happened when he came home. I have a friend who's in heaven now. We always called him Bird. Bird was the kind of guy that just loved to hang around because other than my mom and my wife, he was the best cook you've ever met in your life. The night I met him on a visit where I wanted to share the gospel with him, He'd prepared for me a ribeye, a baked potato, and a salad. That's the kind of visits preachers like, I'm just going to tell you. The reason I liked it, it's because he gave his life to Jesus. He used to sing this song, too. I have a reminder of Bird in my office. I think about him almost every day. If I'm in my office, I see a reminder of him every day. He used to sing this song. Here's the song he would sing. You can, I can see him in his, his blue jeans, in his fishing shirt, his cowboy boots. That guy was a fisherman, a hunter, a boat captain. But he would sing this song. Now and then, an old friend of mine I've not seen in some time. Well, stop by and ask me where I've been, what's on my mind. They wonder why I'm not drinking and still painting this old town red. I tell them I'm serving Jesus now, and the old man is dead. Manasseh could have sung that. He's coming in Jerusalem saying, I'm not the man I was when I left. I'm a new creation. Others became his concern. He built up the walls to protect the city. He made worship 
of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You won't worship these false gods anymore that will drag you to hell. He made the weak places strong. He opened the temple of God for sacrifices to his Lord. God became his goal because God was the one who rescued him and God alone. Manasseh was a, was a sinner. Someone would say, I don't know what happened to Manasseh. Grew up in such a good home. He needs to get into therapy. Thank God for counselors, amen? Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there's no counsel, the people perish, but in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Thank God for biblical, godly counsel. We all need it. Manasseh did not need a psychologist. His problem was not mental. It may have appeared that to so many, but it wasn't his mental health that was at stake here. He didn't need gene therapy because he wasn't born this way. He wasn't born with a proclivity to rebel against God any more than anybody else. We're all born in sin. He didn't need a doctor. Thank God for doctors. He didn't need a preacher to tell him how to be more moral, how to start going to church, how to start giving some money, doing some good deeds, maybe help out a vacation Bible school. Come on, Manasseh, you got to make up for all the bad in order that you might get into heaven. No, he didn't need that because his problem was not his immorality. His problem was his deep-rooted rebellion and disbelief of God. He didn't need the government. He himself was a politician, and he could legislate immorality into morality all he wanted. But even though he called sin not sin, it was still sin. Calling wrong right doesn't make it right. Calling right wrong doesn't make that right either. What he needed as a sinner was a Savior. And in that jail, after having been arrested, and drug away because of the sin, he only had one hope. The early church father, John Christendom, said, if Manasseh was looking simply at the magnitude of his iniquities, he would have despaired of restoration and repentance. He would have missed what he afterward obtained. In other words, Christendom said, if he'd have focused on how terrible he was, how sinful he was, He would have never been restored, but instead, he turned his attention to the mercy of God, and God's mercy is more, and he prayed, and God heard his prayer. We sang it this morning, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum, thrown into the sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And before we leave, just in case there's somebody with a modicum of self-righteousness in them today saying, yeah, but I'm no prodigal. I'm no Manasseh. I've never taken my dad's money and spent it on prostitutes. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a drug addict. I am a moral, upstanding citizen who's never rejected God, and I go to church Listen to another man who also is like you. His name is the Apostle Paul. He went to church. He prayed. He fasted. He gave more than anybody in this room. He went to religious training. He taught the Word of God. But here's what he said. It is a faithful saying, 
It's worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul could have read Manasseh and say, Manasseh has nothing on me. I'm the chief of sinners. And I want to tell you, anyone who's ever been saved falls under the conviction of their sin in such a way, whether they're six years old or 60 years old, they know, I'm a sinner. It doesn't matter if I'm not as bad as someone around me or not as good as someone around me. That's not the issue. It's not about comparison. It's about conversion. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Just a couple of things before we leave. Don't be shaken by the wickedness we see around us. We see it all around us. If you want to be defeated, look back, someone said. If you want to be defeated, look back at your past. You want to be distracted, look around. You want to be dismayed, Look ahead. Oh, my goodness. What's in the future? You want to be delivered? Look up. When a nation is under the judgment of God, it is also ripe for the preaching of the gospel. My wife is, she's, a lot, she's, she, she's just so in love with Jesus, but she is a soul winner. Like she tells people about Jesus all the time. This past week, she asked a couple, are you born again? They said, we don't know what that is. They ended up getting born again. They'll be baptized pretty soon. I think this world knows, this nation knows, our county knows. It's a weird time. It's broken. It's messed up. A nation that's under the judgment of God, and we are, it's also right for the preaching of the gospel. As long as there's breath, there's hope. So don't get distracted by the wickedness that you see or dismayed by it, but be really willing to share the gospel so people can be delivered. And the last thing I'll say this, when you're set free from wickedness, when you're set free from your sin, then you can celebrate a real independence day. When you become dependent on the creator, you have true freedom. The enemy will come and say, hey, freedom is doing what you want, when you want, how you want. True love is love, that is love, that is love. No, true love is mercy, the mercy of God extended to sinners who rebelled against him and deserved death and hell, but he loves us anyway. And so I want to encourage you today to realize true freedom is the freedom from sin to be able to live for God. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you've given us this warning. You told us the Old Testament is a warning to us, among other things, and an example for us to follow and to understand, and sometimes shows us what we have to avoid. Help those here that need to be saved. I want you to do this. There's some of you here, would you just keep your eyes closed for a moment? The way we talk to God is we pray. And I, I would imagine there's some in here who would say right now, I need to trust God as my Lord and Savior. I need to ask Jesus to save me. I believe I'm a sinner. You're right. The Bible's right. I am a sinner. And I deserve death and hell. Has there been a time in your life where you have asked God to save you? I, I don't mean like you're looking back at you've never rejected God and you're doing your best, you're a pretty good person. I mean, has there been a moment in your life where you've actually been converted, where you can say, I know that I know that I'm going to heaven. And you know because you've been saved. If not, why not today be saved? Why not today be saved? 
Man, I've never rejected God. You know, I, I love my, my fiance, my, my bride-to-be, Leslie, but it, she wasn't my bride till I said, I do, and she said, I do. And you, you can want to be in a relationship with God, and, and you can love everything about him, but until you say, I do, you're not. And I'm just asking you today to say yes to the Lord. He's calling you. He's calling you out. Would you, by faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Say, how do I do that, Pastor? Well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you ask God to save you? I'll help you. Just pray to God something like this. Just from your heart, your own words. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you, God. I know it. I want to ask you, please forgive me. I want to ask you in humility because I know I cannot do anything to save myself. I have nothing to offer you. I'm praying that you'll give me the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus died in my place for my sin. I deserve to die, and he died for me. He rose again. I want to follow you, Lord. I want to turn from my sin, trust you today with all my heart. Thank you even for giving me the ability to be here today and giving me the faith to believe. It's all a gift, and I want to thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you ask God to save you? We want to help you in your next step of faith. And I'll tell you how we'll do that in just a moment. But there are some of you who are believers and you're saved. And, but, but here's the reality. You're in sin and, and sin has got you entangled. The only help out, the only hope for you and anybody, any of us who are in sin is to humble ourselves. To come before God and to, and, and to, to lean on his mercy. And God, forgive me. To confess your sin. You know that sin grows. It's like mold. You don't deal with it. You don't deal with the root. The fruit just keeps coming. You've got to go and deal with it with God. And you can't quit, can't keep playing with it and hoping one day you'll be able to tame it. No, it will continue to keep you in chains. But God will set you free. He'll set you free. So would you humble yourself before God today? Get right with God. Would you pray to God and say, God, I need help. And I need to take the steps necessary to walk in freedom because I want to walk in freedom. I want to go to bed in freedom. I want to get up in freedom. And I want to proclaim to everyone I know the freedom that's found in Jesus Christ.